0: This is R.J. Rush Easy Chair, number 21, June 22, 1982. I have a number of miscellaneous items I'd like to start off with today. First of all, from the May, or rather, June-July, 1982 Farm Journal. An article on page 24, it's Man Who's Making This Dust Bowl. Previously, uh, farmers in the Western Plains did create the Dust Bowl of the 30s, which was such a fearful one. Now it is in the Western Plains in the rangelands because these are being plowed by their owners. Just a few quotes from the article. The dust now comes from rangeland. It's wrong, I know it's wrong, to ever plow this grass, says a western Kansas rancher kicking at a four-foot inch a four foot drift of dust that's piled over the fence row. Still, he has done it. My daddy left me this ranch, and I can't hold on to it, he says. With high costs and low prices, I had to borrow on the land. We had draw it in 79, hail in 80, and that may freeze in 81. Now the banks won't let us have any more meaning. Money, our backs are up against the wall. To save part of their equity, many ranchers and farmers with livestock have sold out to speculators. Some of them plowed grassland and seeded winter wheat. In a wet year it might make a good crop, and who could blame them for taking two hundred and fifty to three hundred dollars an acre for land with a crop instead of the hundred to a hundred and fifty they would get for grass? But that's where the present Dust Bowl is coming from, made by man for a quick buck. We've had 439,000 acres of grassland plowed up in Colorado, says Jerry Schwein of Denver. They're plowing grassland by the square mile in Lincoln County, reports David Sharman, uh, Hugo, Colorado. And a lot of the wheat is dying because the soil is only a couple of inches thick. One outfit is plowing 12 sections of grassland, and all but three are class 6 land or poor. It should never be plowed, and it'll take Mother Nature 200 years to get the grass cover back on the land. We might be able to seed native grasses back on some of the land and eventually give it some protection, but that's costly, says Roy Kamak, Colorado Springs, Colorado. To put back blue grama, side oats, grama, and western wheatgrass, seed alone comes to $61.39 per acre. And then you might have to do it again, Kamek says. In critical areas or where you broadcast, you would double the seeding rate. The taxpayer will have to reclaim rangeland that should never have been disturbed, predicts Weld County Commissioner Chuck Carlson, who farms 1,200 acres and feeds cattle, sheep, and hogs near Eaton, Colorado. We'd like to have freedom to farm, but we must also find some way to control erosion. End of quote. Now, that's one of the byproducts of an inflationary economy, high taxes on uh, farm and ranching areas, and a spiraling debt as a result for farmers and ranchers. Another item, this from the Washington Monthly for May 1982. Don't go to the hospital unless you have absolutely no choice. The director of the Center for Disease Control says 2 million of the people who enter hospitals each year catch infections unrelated to their original condition. 80,000 die from these infections. This makes hospitals more lethal than highways." Now, The article goes on to say a few other things, but what it does not say is that hospitals are no longer in any way controlled by doctors. Hospital administrators run hospitals, and the doctor is someone they push around. So we do have problems, very serious problems, with medical care today. The doctors get the blame because very few people know that a hospital administrator exists. Then this from the May 14, 1982 National Review on page 527. I quote, The Soviet Union reports a huge increase in its slave trade. Well, it hasn't quite reported it, but here's the deal in progress. Vietnam, with a war debt to the USSR of at least $3 billion, is to lend workers to the Soviet Union to pay off the debt. Reliable estimates put the number of Vietnamese workers shipped already at at least 10,000. Unconfirmed reports put the estimate as high as 500,000. The workers are supposed to pay off the Vietnamese debt at 300 to 400 million a year. If the trade involves as few as 10,000, that puts the going rate at 30 to 40,000 dollars each per year, vastly more than the Soviet slave economy would allow, and more, in fact, than most party commissars are paid. A figure of 1,000 per year, still not bad for the Soviet peasantry, would suggest three hundred to 400,000 workers. In any case, it's clear that business is brisk. Unquote. There never has been an age in all of history with more slavery and a higher ratio of mankind enslaved than today. The kind of slavery we have today all over the world is predominantly state ownership of slaves. Private slavery has always been a minority fact. Perhaps as high a ratio as you've ever seen in any society owned slaves in the Old South. But even then, it was one out of eight men in the South who owned a slave. So, slavery was not uh, popular with the others, and it was a minimal fact, but for the fact that those one out of 18 men were the wealthier and more important people, and had a preponderant control of the South. Now, very briefly, something else. Panic to the People by Elizabeth Whelan and Kathleen Meister in the May 1982 reason is an excellent article about the habit of the uh, various federal agencies uh, conducting an ostensible scientific uh, study to answer questions about the possible health effects of a substance. On the flimsiest kind of evidence, they will announce that uh, cancer is likely because of this or that reason. An industry or a product or a food is thereby condemned when subsequent work indicates that the entire thing was absurd and ill-warranted. Then in private practice, which is a medical uh, monthly, and uh, this is the... Well, I (laughs) can't find... Oh, yes, for May 1982. There is an editorial by Dr. Francis A. Davis, What About the Truth? And... I'll quote it in part, uh, deals with erroneous reporting. Sixty minutes recently aired a story in which they reported a major pharmaceutical company was guilty of fraudulent action in handling the placement and removal of an antihypertensive drug for patient use. The charges were completely false, and I believe the courts will issue a statement to that effect in the future. In the meantime, the damage to the reputation of a major ethical ethical company has been done. The movie, I'm Dancing as Fast as I Can, based on the book by Barbara Gordon, depicts the author's problem resulting from the misuse of a certain tranquilizer. During legal proceedings, the author's testimony and medical records revealed the facts do not support the information as reported in the book or shown in the movie. The author had intensive psychoanalytic treatment after prolonged self-medication of at least five different drugs while also using alcohol with those drugs. Phil Donahue spent one of his hour-long television programs reporting inaccurate facts pertaining to this tranquilizer based on the information from the book and movie. Physicians who have prescribed this tranquilizer know when it's When it is properly used, it has been one of the most important drugs of this century. Physicians know prescription drugs should not be self-medicated. The book, movie, and Phil Donahue have done a grave injustice to patients who could have benefited from this drug but are now afraid to take it. Well, now to a final article, and this is worth getting. It's from the June uh, 1982 American Legion, a dollar a copy, and it can be purchased from the American Legion magazine, 700 North Pennsylvania Street, Indianapolis, Indiana, 46206. The yearly subscription is $9, and a single copy, $1. The Legion magazine has many good articles in it uh, throughout the year. This one is by Ernest Cuneo, and the title is The Sabre and the Tin Cup. I'd like to quote at some length from it, because I believe it is a very, very important article. The Soviet Communist Empire is in desperate straits, and it proposes to swindle the free world into bailing it out. It proposes to borrow so much from the free world that the free world will go broke if the Soviet Communist regime fails. This is as simple as the old banking axiom that a huge loan makes the bank an unwilling partner of the borrower. The purpose of the loan is another matter. Ironically, the Kremlin desperately needs Western production to maintain its vast military machine, whose principal target is the same Western countries from which the Kremlin is seeking help. Moscow has vast form of forces under arms, aimed primarily at the U.S. and Western Europe. The Soviet Union and its satellites cannot maintain this top-heavy burden Without the aid of the intended victims. Accordingly, the Kremlin is seeking long term, low interest loans for the immediate purchase of Western technology with which to overrun the free world before the loans come due. Four million Soviets are under arms. There is a compulsory draft two years for the Army and Air Force, and three years for the Navy. This tremendous drain on productive civilian manpower is manifested in the greatest peacetime panoply of arms in history. The economy of the Soviet Empire is breaking under the strain. Ever since 1945, the USSR has been on a wartime economy. Military priorities take precedence over everything else the military has first choice of everything from raw materials to finished products. Most importantly, the Russian armed forces have first call on the highest type of personnel, including all Soviet scientists." Now, of course, the economy, as Cuneo points out, of the Soviet Empire is breaking under this burden. What their loans will do, or their borrowing will do, is to break us. And it's absurd, the whole situation, for us to assume a burden that will be radically destructive of us. To continue with the article, Russia has avoided war against any major power since World War II and will continue to do so, the author says. By threatening war and never fighting any major power, the Kremlin has gained all its objectives, but there are now new and heavy drains. The Kremlin is fighting a grueling guerrilla war in Afghanistan. There, some 90,000 Soviet troops are glumly attempting to subdue some 20 million uh, Afghanistanis who are widely dispersed in a forbidding territory about the size of Texas. Casualties have been light as modern warfare goes, 200 a week. But this adds up to 10,000 a year, and final pacification is nowhere in sight. When to this is added the 120,000 square miles of Poland and its smoldering 35 million people, it is perfectly apparent that for the first time in its history the Kremlin faces serious external resistance in territories adjoining Russia, which are already occupied by communist armies. This explains the extreme caution with which the USSR is proceeding. Thus, the Kremlin is not declaring, as it did in Czechoslovakia, that Russia has a right to enter Poland under the Brezhnev Doctrine to preserve a tottering communist regime. On the contrary, the Kremlin is declaring the difficulties of Poland to be an internal matter. This, of course, is sheer nonsense. Two Russian tank divisions have been in Poland for years, and thousands of Russian soldiers are wearing Polish uniforms. More importantly, the Russian KGB has complete control and direction of all Polish police, security and intelligence systems. It is a Marxist doctrine that capitalism will fall because of its own contradictions. The fact is, however, that communism is staggering under the weight of its own paradoxes. The overall Communist balance sheet shows that the Soviet Empire, in all phases except the military, is slipping badly. The USSR has slightly more people than the United States and more than two and a half times more territory, yet it produces less than half. Konev goes on to say that the red flag has come to mean red ink, Poland borrowed 27 billion from the West, and it cannot repay those loans, Koneo points out. It was understood, moreover, that Russia was going to guarantee those loans, but Russia is doing nothing of the sort. So now we are talking about more loans to them. Meanwhile, Red China is an enemy when, 20 years ago, it was an ally. Forty-six Russian divisions have to be maintained along the uh, Chinese border. On top of that, as Guneo points out, the 42 nations of the Islamic world, 600 million Muslims, are hostile to the Kremlin. You have 35 million Poles who are again hostile. One billion Chinese, 600 million Muslims, and then 600 million Roman Catholics who are anti-Catholic add up to 2.2 billion persons, about two-thirds of the human race. And as a result, Cuneo says, it is a catastrophe of the Kremlin's psychological war that it has succeeded in only two years in moving two of the world's largest religions into open opposition to its imperial expansion. Then, by way of contrast, Cuneo says, and I quote, once the American people are awakened, they can more than duplicate Russian military might, even on a peacetime economy. The U.S. today is twice the workforce it had in 1941, and at least four times the productive capacity. But even compared with the industrial of America 40 years ago, Russia is still outclassed. Yes, today Russia has 50,000 tanks but from 1942 to 45 the us produced 105000 tanks and was producing 50000 tanks a year when the war ended sure the kremlin has 20000 pieces of heavy artillery and 17000 guns of lesser caliber very impressive until it is noted that the us has uh, us produced 375000 pieces of field artillery from 42 through 45, of equal caliber and better quality. Yes, the Soviet's four-ocean navy has about 1,800 warships, varying from a few carriers to a huge submarine force of 585. But from 1942 through 45, American shipyards turned out more than 10,000 warships. Moreover, the American shipyards spewed out cargo ships as if they were sausages. Twenty million tons per year. So efficient was American technology even then that at the California yards, Liberty ships whose keels were laid on Monday morning were ready to sail on Friday afternoon. As for airplanes, the U.S. had less than 8,041. But by 45, the U.S. had over 230,000 aircraft in the air, including trainers, fighters, and bombers. Actually, by the end of 45, the U.S. was producing airplanes at the rate of 100,000 per year. Most galling to the Marxist theorists that even on a wartime economy, the standard of American living rose 25%. Quite clearly, the U.S. could today snow Russia under in an arms race. Having been saved by American production in World War II, the Kremlin knows and fears what an awakened America can do. But America's future capacity can't fight now. Blueprints can't stop tanks. Uh, End of quote. Well, Cuneo has a great deal more very important data here, I'd like to read, perhaps, a little more. The time has come to set the record straight. Twice before the Kremlin has come as a beggar to the United States, and twice the U.S. has rescued it. Following the 1917 revolution, millions of Russians were starving. The American Relief Administration under Herbert C. Hoover saved millions of dying Russians in the Ukraine and Don Basin. Uh, Let me add parenthetically... We sent wheat over there to save them. At the same time, Lenin was exporting what little Russian wheat was produced. He was doing this for political purposes. To continue with Cuneo, in the dire emergency, Lenin himself abandoned communism and instituted free foreign enterprise under his uh, new economic policy. Within eight years, free enterprise succeeded so well in Russia that Stalin had to crush it. Communism could not stand the open competition. It couldn't then, and it can't now. In 1941, the U.S. again rescued Russia. By Stalin's own statement, U.S. production was the decisive factor in Russia's victory over Hitler. By begging, bluffing, and bullying, the Kremlin managed to get through the previous domestic crises. Now, ironically, the Kremlin is desperately trying to secure free world production and particularly American technology, not to save the Russian people but to maintain communist imperialism far beyond its borders. Since it can't advance and it can't retreat, the only course available to the Kremlin is to further compress its captives, including the Russian people and beg, borrow, or swindle the free world into supporting it. For all practical purposes, therefore, the Kremlin is pounding the mailed fist on the front door and rattling the tin cup at the back door. Russia is desperate, because all signs say that communism is beginning slowly to sink into the bloody quagmire of its own creation." Well, we have today an unparalleled opportunity to destroy communism. All we have to do is to stop financing it, stop the bank loans to the Soviet Union. But the fact is, every administration, including the present, have only done exactly what the Kremlin wants, further the financing of world imperialism by Marxism. It's sheer insanity. Well, now I want to turn to something very, very different. This is from a book that I intend to get back to. In fact, I've had this here on the stool for some months, intending to deal with it, but I've gotten sidetracked. It's a book by Robert H. Bremer, B. As in boy, R E M N E R, The Public Good Philanthropy and Welfare in the Civil War Era, published in 1980 in New York by Alfred A. Knopf, K N O P F, for $15. I'll return to this book at a later date, but. I'd like to read just this passage, and I quote: "In the wake of the climatic vagaries of 1854 and 1855, a famine Frederick Law Olmsted called unprecedented in North America, struck northern Georgia and Alabama and western South Carolina. Five years later, a succession of rainless months in 1859 and 1860." reduced thousands of Kansas settlers to destitution. Short harvests in 1860 brought near famine to parts of Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi. On the other hand, Illinois farmers, burdened with a huge corn crop, faced ruin from surplus rather than shortage. Two months after Mississippi had seceded from the Union, Citizens of Springfield, Illinois, sent 1,000 bushels of corn, which might otherwise have been burned for fuel, to starving Mississippians, Now that's something you don't read about very often, and I think it's a tragedy that nobody has ever bothered to write a book about the extent to which North and South remained one people through the war. There's no question that there were bloody and brutal atrocities on both sides. Sherman's institution of total warfare in his march through Georgia. Quantrill's raiders uh, with their savagery in dealing with uh, any Union sympathizers. And much, much more. All this is true, no question about it but what no one bothers to report is that there were, all through the war, men on both sides who still were not merely merciful and gracious to the other side, but could see the others still as one people with them, without being disloyal to the cause they were fighting for or the cause they represented. The fact that, during the peace negotiations, Abraham Lincoln, president of the North, and Alexander Hamilton Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, in coming together to discuss the peace could renew their friendship as old friends from their days in Congress is significant the terms and conditions of Lee's surrender, and much, much more. No one has bothered to write a book or done the most elementary research on the very considerable material that indicates that all through the war there were people on both sides who still, despite their disagreements, were ready to see themselves as one people. Now, the help that was given after secession began two months after by these people of Springfield, Illinois, is an example of that. One of the sad things about war is that it brings the worst element out into full force. It gives them an opportunity on both sides of every War to express their evil nature, the reason for this is a very simple one. The scum in a country can feel self-righteous when war is declared. Suddenly, they are a part of the good guys as against the bad guys. I saw this very clearly in World War II. I did a little traveling at that time. At the beginning, when Pearl Harbor hit, I was a seminary student. A little later, I was on an Indian reservation as a missionary. And I did travel back and forth across Colorado and... California, and in fact, uh, somewhere along the route, I made a much more extended trip towards the very end. Now, the thing that was very, very startling to me at the time, and very obvious, was that there was a great deal of vocal expression, public expression, by people who, in a, a figurative sense, were in the back alleys, of society before. They were loud-mouthed in public places, in restaurants, on buses, on trains, everywhere. Loud-mouthed and foul-mouthed. They felt very righteous because they were against the Japs and the Nazis. Suddenly they'd gained virtue because national action was focused against an alien, an outside enemy. And so they could feel very bigoted. I recall in one instance in a restaurant when somebody was particularly crude and loud, there were a group of them, and uh, the maitre d' tried to ask them very quietly not to express themselves in the way they did. Her response was, What are you, some kind of Nazi? Now, you get the picture. War enables the scum, the lawless element, to gain a false justification because it is no longer the internal enemy who's the problem, the lawless man, the underground man. The national attention is focused on someone else. So, these people feel they can join the ranks of the righteous, and they do so very loudly and vocally. In war, on every side, such people are very vocal during a war. They sometimes have an effect on public policy because of their a habit of shouting down others. The worst politicians tend to flourish. On top of this, there is the tragic fact that in the modern world, these people are very much involved in war. With the French Revolution, conscription became a popular and common fact among nations, and with it, total war. Everybody was now involved in the war because conscription hit every family in a country. Second, with the French Revolution and politics since the French Revolution, the state has become very openly and progressively, more and more so, the messianic, the saving power in a society. Man is going to be saved by the state. Salvation is going to come through politics and so on. As a result, everyone is involved to some degree. And in wartime, emotionally, people who in peacetime will be indifferent now are involved. And a war brings out the worst in every people. There's another factor about war we need to remember. In this century in particular, war is almost always also revolution. Nowadays, less and less are revoli- revolutions occurring in the old-fashioned sense, and especially not in the major nations. Revolutions come because of war. The loser always faces a revolution, an open one. The winner has a revolution because of what the war does to alter the nature of the state, to create a powerful bureaucracy and extensive controls. World War I was a major revolution in the United States. World War II continued that revolution, as did Korea and Vietnam. In the modern era, no state has retreated from the powers it gains in wartime. That's an important fact to consider. A uh, few things are surrendered here and there, but the state always emerges with vastly more powers. So if you want to have a revolution, centralization, totalitarianism, go into war. And, of course, to be defenseless is to ask for another war. So there is a valid case for strengthening national defense in order to have peace, because another war will be really the completion, perhaps, of the revolution that began with World War One. Well, I've touched on a number of miscellaneous things. I'd like to call attention briefly now to a book published a few years ago, not the best book in the world, but there is really nothing uh, of top quality on Noah Webster. This book is by John S. Morgan, published by Mason Charter in New York in 1975 and out of print. The title is simply Noah Webster. Webster, a very strong Calvinist, is too little appreciated today. He was, in a real sense, one of the founders of this country, a father of the Constitution, because it was his various writings that helped promote the acceptance of the Constitution after the Convention. He was also the first to prepare a system of education, the first to give rules of versification to children, the first to do something about getting copyright laws, the first to publish selections from budding American writers, the first to write and teach American history and civics, the first to foster a consciousness of nationality, the first to insist upon nationality in language, manners, and education, the first to prepare books to teach children these principles, the first to foster America's feeling of democratic idealism, and much, much more. Uh, Webster, by the way, was also one of the early, if not the earliest, advocate of unemployment insurance, but on an entirely private, free-market basis. He is usually portrayed as a somewhat crotchety figure, but uh, he was a delightful person. Uh, I like this little item from uh, his early days when, as a young man, he listed the eligible girls in the town and then made this entry for April 4, 1784, in his diary, At Home read a little, had some company, and visited the ladies in the evening as usual. If there were but one pretty girl in town, a man could make a choice, but among so many, one's heart is pulled twenty ways at once. The greatest difficulty, however, is that after a man has made his choice, it remains the lady to make hers. Now to something entirely different. I got a book today, The Joys of Lex, L-E-X, by G. Brandreth, published by William Morrow and Company in New York in 1980. This book is about words and uh, boners, uh, witticisms, peculiar words, strange words, and so on. I like the section that I... Um, started to read when I opened the book at random about uh, schoolboy howlers from various examination papers. This one. Robinson Caruso was a great operatic singer. Abstinence is a good thing if practiced in moderation. The inhabitants of Paris are called parasites. Jacob had a brother called Seesaw. The first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. A hostage is a nice lady on an airplane. Fidel Castro invented castor oil. And then this about the Gorgons from Greek mythology. The Gorgons had long snakes in their hair. They looked like women, only more horrible. And this, Tom Sayre was a smart boy. His character was always good sometimes. Socrates died from an overdose of wedlock. Income is a yearly tax. Pasteur found a cure for rabbis. Kosher is Jewish pork. A mosquito is the child of black-and-white parents. Laissez-faire are lazy French women. And this from a college paper on uh, a play by George Bernard Shaw, Mrs. Warren's Profession. In Mrs. Warren's Profession, her profession is the oldest profession but she is not really a lost woman. She is just mislaid. (laughs) Well, a lot more like that. The book is a delight. And uh, then some from uh, newspaper and magazine articles. The bride wore a long white lace dress which fell to the floor. The women included their husbands and children in their potluck supper. The summary of information contains totals of the number of students broken down by sex, marital status, and age. I can't blame you for wanting to go outside and sit on your 10 minute break. We had Mr. Colso for dinner. A Boy Scout can cook himself. A gentleman never crumbles his bread or rolls in his soup. (laughs) Well, (laughs) enough of that. Now I'd like to share a few of my favorite poems with you. This is from Edith Thomas, an American poetess, was born in 1854. The title is Frost Tonight. Apple green west and an orange bar on the crystal eye of a lone one star. And child, take the shears and cut what you will. Frost Tonight, so clear and dead still. Then I sally forth half sad, half proud and I come to the velvet imperial crowd, the wine red, the gold, the crimson, the pie, to the dahlias that reign by the garden side. The dahlias I might not touch till to-night. The gleam of shears in the fading light, and I gather them all, the splendid throng, and in one great sheaf I bore them all along. In my garden of life, with all its late flowers, I heed a voice in the shrinking hours, frost to night so clear and dead still. Half sad, half proud, my arms I fill. And this one from Lizette Woods Woodworth Reese. A poetess from about the same era, perhaps a few years later in her birth, entitled Tears. When I consider life in its few years, a wisp of fog betwixt us and the sun, a call to battle and the battle done ere the last echo dies within our ears, a rose choked in the grass, an hour of fears, The gusts that pass the darkening shore do beat the burst of music down an unlisting street. I wonder at the idleness of tears. Ye old, old dead, and ye of yesternight, chieftains and bards and keepers of the sheep, by every cup of sorrow that you had, loose me from tears and make me see aright. How each has back, But once he stayed to weep, Homer his sight, David his little lad. And then this, which I've always been especially fond of, by James Oppenheim, who was born in 1882, entitled The Slave. They set the slave free, striking off his chains. Then he was as much of a slave as ever. He was still chained to servility. He was still manacled to indolence and sloth. He was still bound by fear and superstition, by ignorance, suspicion, and savagery. His slavery was not in the chains, but in himself. They can only set free men free, and there is no need of that. Free men set themselves free. And This by Jean Starr Untermeyer, born in 1886. Clay Hills It is easy to mold the yielding clay, and many shapes grow into beauty under the facile hand. But forms of clay are lightly broken. They will lie shattered and forgotten in a dingy corner. But underneath the slipping clay is rock. I would rather work in stubborn rock all the years of my life and make one strong thing and set it in a high, clean place to recall the granite strength of my desire. Well, I don't want to get started on anything further. We have just a few minutes left. And I'd like to tell you very briefly, of last night I drove to Sacramento to be on an interview show on television, Channel 10, one of the bigger Northern California stations. And it was on uh, public versus private education, Christian schools, essentially. I found it uh, very interesting, and it brought back memories to me. Because 25 years ago, to talk on this subject was to invite a great deal of hostility In fact, if you talked to an ostensibly Christian group or to ministers, you were likely to be, as I was, uh, interrupted by a minister standing up to denounce you for talking about Christian schools and deflecting people from their concern with the gospel, and so on and so on. That no longer happens. In fact, I would say the people who are against Christian schools are now on the defensive and keep their mouth shut. Well, the two other men on the um, talk show conversations were... Definitely not in the same corner as I was. One of them was a representative of the State Board of Education, a kindly older man. I should talk, he was younger than myself, but I don't think of myself uh, as old by any means. Well... I came out very clearly for a free market in education. I said I believe that the public schools ought to be disenfranchised uh, from or rather disestablished, denied access to tax funds on the grounds that they constituted an establishment of religion. They teach humanism they represent a religious school they should not receive tax funds i said i wanted to see a free market in education with everyone free to open their schools the humanists and any religious group that wanted to i made it clear i was not asking for the abolition of the state schools i expected them to die a natural death but as long as people wanted them i was ready to go along with the continuance of the Christians of the public schools provided they did not work to destroy non-statist education. Now, this was not the first time I've been on television and radio as well, with a like discussion. But the interesting thing to me this time was that the other two men, while not agreeing with me, were not in strong opposition. In other words, what we are seeing is a growing recognition that the truth is on our side, an awareness that the present situation is not right when at one point I was told that uh, there were these problems of segregation in some Christian schools, and I challenged the extent to which this was true, but I said I was willing to grant that it did exist in more cases than probably the federal government was aware of. But I also said we haven't reached paradise in 20 years in Christian education, or 30 years. And for that matter, we're going to look only at the bad examples the public schools are most vulnerable. So why go into that issue? Let's look at the situation on its merits, on principles. So, of course, when I raised the problem of what constituted Uh, Problems in the public schools, very briefly, that if they were going to go into the issue that some Christian schools may have been established to avoid segregation, they dropped the subject immediately. When I challenged them to find the public schools as equally free of fault, so they did. It was a congenial session, but what I think we face today is a growing awareness that the truth is on our side. The opposition is not happy with that awareness, but it has a sneaking suspicion that all is not well with its cause. I like the statement that uh, California State Senator Bill Richardson made a few years ago to me about the liberals in the state government. He indicated they were all frightened, and he said to me, Rush, they all have battle diarrhea. They know that they are on the losing side, and they're badly scared of what's coming. Well... The courts have not gotten that message too clearly yet. Our courts too often tend to be removed from reality on the federal level. And we have a lot of uh, work ahead of us where the U.S. Supreme Court is concerned. But here again, the interesting thing to me is that more than a few scholarly books of late have taken the Supreme Court to task. The men who have done so are not all conservatives. Some are, and some are not. The simple fact is the court is under fire, and I believe this will get to the court in due time. What we have to do is to continue with the fight, go into court again and again, organized for action in the courts and in legislative assemblies to keep up the pressure and to intensify it. We can turn this thing around. Well, my time is just about up now. It's been good to be with you, and I will be looking forward to our next session two weeks hence.